Hello, I'm Beth, and I'm going to be reading from Micah 6, verses 1 to 8. The Lord's case against Israel. Listen to what the Lord is saying. Stand up and state your case against me. Let the mountains and hills be called to witness your complaints. And now, O mountains, listen to the Lord's complaint. He has a case against his people. He will bring charges against Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? What have I done to make you tired of me? Answer me. For I brought you out of Egypt and redeemed you of slavery. I sent Moses, Aaron, and Miriam to help you. Don't you remember my people? How King Balak of Moab tried to have you cursed, and how Balaam, son of Beor, blessed you instead. And remember your journey from Asia Grove to Gilgal, when I, the Lord, did everything I could to teach you about my faithfulness. What can we bring to the Lord? Should we bring him burnt offerings? Should we bow before God Most High with offerings of yearling calves? Should we offer him thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Should we sacrifice our firstborn children to pay for our sins? No, O people, the Lord has told you what is good, and this is what he requires of you, to do what is right, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Uh, thank you, Beth, for that reading. And um, as, as we said, we're reading from a book from the Old Testament, probably it's 2,700 years old. And um, before, before we jump into some of the things that I wanted to share with you, um, I'll, I'm going to share a screen now, and hopefully this is going to work. Otherwise, I'm going to ask you to, to look at it for yourself today. But I'm going to share a, a YouTube um, screen. The book of the prophet Micah. Micah lived in a small town named Moreshet in the southern kingdom of Judah, about the same time as Isaiah. And both the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel had split long ago, and both had been violating their covenant with the God of Israel. So Micah warned that God would bring the big bad empire of Assyria to take out the northern kingdom and come ravage Jerusalem. And he also warned that after them, Babylon would bring an even greater destruction. Like all the prophets, Micah spoke on God's behalf to accuse Israel, or as he puts it in chapter 3, I am filled with strength, with the spirit of God, with justice and power to declare how Israel has rebelled. And so, most of this book explores Micah's accusations and his warnings of God's judgment on Israel. But Micah also had a message of hope that countered these warnings about the restoration God would bring on the other side of his judgment. And if you dive into the book with us, you'll see how this works. So the first two sections of the book develop Micah's accusations and warnings against Israel and its leaders. So part one opens with the poetic description of God appearing over Israel, just like he did at Mount Sinai. There's fire and smoke and earthquake, but he hasn't come to make a covenant this time. He's come to bring his judgment on Israel for over 500 years of rebellion. Micah goes on to name all of these towns and cities in Israel that are the culprits of all of this rebellion, God's coming for them. But why exactly? So Micah picks a fight with Israel's leaders. He says that they've become wealthy through theft and greed. He alludes to the story of Ahab stealing a family vineyard from Naboth in 1 Kings chapter 21. But also it's because Israel's prophets are corrupt. They're quite happy to offer promises of God's protection to anyone who can afford to pay them. No, Micah says, God has withdrawn his protection from Israel. 
In the second section of Accusations, Micah describes even more how Israel's leaders and prophets have together committed grave injustice. They run the land through bribery, they bend justice to favor the wealthy, and the poor are deprived of their land, their security, and their hope. And all of this is a violation of the laws of the Torah, which declare it illegal to sell land that belongs to families, even if they're poor. And so we find out that God's judgment is going to take the form of an oppressive nation that comes to take out the northern kingdom and Jerusalem and its temple, which will be reduced to ruins. Now these are very stiff warnings and they're not the final word. Each of these warning sections is concluded with a striking promise of hope. So first is a poem about how God is like a shepherd who's going to rescue and regather his flock, which is the remnant of his people. And he's going to bring them all back to good pasture and become their king once more. The second warning section is concluded by picking up this image of the ruined Jerusalem temple. And Micah says this won't be permanent. One day God is going to exalt his temple. He's going to fill it with his presence and fill the city with the remnant of his people. And so God's purpose is to make Israel the meeting place of heaven and earth so that all nations will stream to Jerusalem where God becomes the king of all the nations bringing peace to the earth. Now these two concluding poems of hope, they're very powerful. And the next section of the book actually develops them further in a beautifully designed series of poems that are entirely about the future hope of Israel and the nations. So we learn that after the Assyrian attack, Israel will be conquered and exiled to Babylon. But from there, God will restore his people and bring them back to their land. And then we learn that in the new Jerusalem, a new messianic king from the line of David will come. He'll be born in Bethlehem and then rule in Jerusalem over the restored people of God. Finally, in this messianic kingdom of God, the faithful remnant of God's people will become that blessing among the nations. But at the same time, God will bring his final justice and remove evil from his world. The final section of the book returns to this pattern of warning followed by hope that we saw in the first parts of the book. So Micah exposes again the unjust economic practices of Israel's leaders and how it's destroying the land and its people. And here Micah offers his famous words that summarize what it means for Israel to follow their God. He has told you, O human, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. This is exactly what Israel has not been doing, and so they will come to ruin. However, the book ends with another powerful note of hope. Israel is personified as an individual who's sitting alone in shame and defeat. It's a clear image of Israel's destruction and exile. And this individual is watching for God's mercy and he begs God to listen and forgive. But why? Why should God listen to and forgive this faithless and rebellious people? Well, the poet offers two reasons. First, he says, because of God's character. Who is a God like you who forgives sin and pardons rebellion? He knows that God's mercy is more powerful than his anger or his judgment. And the second reason is because of God's promises. He says, you will stay true to Jacob and show covenant love to Abraham as you swore so long ago. Now these are the final words of the book. They're an allusion to God's covenant promises to Abraham and his family all the way back in the book of Genesis, that all nations would find God's blessing through Abraham's family. 
But to become a blessing to the nations, Israel must first be faithful to their God. And so this explains this back and forth between judgment and hope in the book of Micah. If God's going to bless the nations through Israel, then he must confront and judge the evil among his people. But his judgment is what leads to hope. Because God's covenant love and promise are more powerful than human evil, and his ultimate purpose is not to destroy, it's to save and redeem. Or as the concluding lines of the book put it, God delights in covenant love, so he will again show compassion. He will trample our evil. He will toss our sins into the depth of the sea. And that's what the book of... I, I hope you found that video um, helpful. So as I said earlier on, the, the book of Micah is written 2,700 um, years ago. And it's a, it's a book about and this people, Israel, who have had this agreement with God to be his people and to be walking in his way, and, and all of a sudden um, they, they are finding themselves not doing that. And God has to draw their attention by bringing prophets. And one of these prophets, of the many prophets that they were sent, was Micah. And, and Micah in, him, in the book himself does not introduce who he is, but, but he introduces, if you read the beginning of the book, where he's coming from. And perhaps there is conversations that Micah was the elder um, of, of, of this, uh, one of the elders of the city. Now, I've had slides prepared for this talk, but they're not working, so I'm not going to waste my time with that. But I just wanted to draw to your attention that there is, there is two things that the, the, the prophet here is facing. He's facing the corruption of the leadership of the people and the leaders of the city, but also he's facing and he's challenging the corruptions of the religious leaders, the priests and the prophets who are not actually doing their job. So in one sense, he's drawing their attention because they have got responsibility before God as much as the people themselves have got responsibility before God. Now, the series on Micah are called more than a catchphrase. Because, because I've, I, the reason why I chose this is because when we think about a catchphrase, if we looked at the dictionary definition of a catchphrase, it says it's widely and repeatedly used often with little of its original meaning remaining. The Oxford definition is a well-known phrase associated with a well-known person. And, and the idea of this catchphrase is that one of the things that we will be working on in the next three weeks is that we're going to walk together with these big phrases that actually they are catchphrases and we can identify them with Micah. But in the same time, God wants more than just the catchphrase. More, God wants more than just the catchphrase for us. And it's the idea that Micah says, you know, what have I requested of you? Micah chapter 6, uh, verses um, 7 um, onwards. Or maybe let's read uh, from verses 6 when he says, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come with him, with, to him with burnt offerings? And calves of a year old, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn on my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? 
So, so the approach of these people was through the sacrificial systems in, in the Old Testament, and, and God had requested so in that manner, so they could approach him and could be reminded of their shortcomings and ask for forgiveness. So, so the idea is that Micah now, the prophet, asks the questions, what shall I do? What, how can we approach God? If we, if we have been doing um, things that are not according to what God has asked us, what can we do? Shall we, shall we retrieve back to our sacrificial system? And I think God is, is calling them, is summoning them, and he's saying that it's much more bigger, the situation is much more bigger than that. And he's saying, well, he has showed you, that's what the prophet is saying now to the people, he has showed you, oh men, what is good. So it's not, it's not the, 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 the idea of the rituals, but he has shown you what is good. And Micah now is going to prophesy for the people. And he's saying, he's telling things that they should be doing. He's saying to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And this was done in the context of where the people, where the leadership, where the, 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 the religious leadership of, the, of, the, of that group of people was. And they were not following God they were not falling through what God was saying. They were just doing the rituals. And therefore, Micah has to step in and saying, it's much bigger than what you think it is with the rituals. It's, it's, it's that opportunity that God gives us to, to, to follow him and allow us, allows us to, to really change uh, our hearts. Uh, the, the, the whole chapter 6 starts with the idea of the prophet makes a stance and he says, Shema. Every time you hear the word Shema, there is an opportunity to listen. And it's not that passive listening of the news or a music or something of Radio 4. The Shema is that listening of stopping and paying attention. The Shema has got that, that, that way of Actually, when, when I have to tell my kids, stop for not crossing the roads, rather than stop for not eating a little bit more piece of cake or a fruit or something like that. It's got that weight of stop, pay attention, hear. And this is what God used for the people of Israel throughout the whole their history by bringing people to stop to think so they can tune, so they can turn their hearts and they could come towards God. So, so the, 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 the story of this prophet starts by, by unfolding to the people. He's saying, listen, verse 1, to what the Lord says. Listen to what the Lord says. And then he's going to give a picture of who God is. If you read from verses 1 to 6, the prophet has wrapped up the history of thousands of years of how good God has been with his people. How good he has been towards them. He tells them the story of appointing the, the threesome leadership of Moses, of Aaron, of Miriam. He, he reminds them of the story when, they, when, when the, the, the 
the king of Moab wanted to curse the people of Israel and Balaam turned that curse into a blessing for the people. He wants to remind them of the crossing of the Jordan River and, and how God was towards them. So when God is saying, listen, he wants to show this great picture of who God is and how he has been towards them. And perhaps it's time for us in the midst of this pandemic to stop, to listen, and to remember God's goodness towards us during this time. And it's not only that. He is not only picturing something of who God is, but something that what God expects his people to be. So after painting this picture of who God is, now the paint is, the, the, the brush is handed over to us and saying, now you paint the picture of what somebody who follows God looks like. And he, he's saying here, so what, what can we come towards God? Shall we come with, with quantity? Shall we come with these big, big numbers of sacrifices so that we can please him? Shall we come with quality? And actually, the people have really missed the point here because it's neither about quality nor quantity. What the prophet is reaching out to people is that attitude of a changed heart because they've responded to the goodness of God. So what the prophet is, is marking here is saying that actually, guys, it's not the rituals, although they are important, but it's that change of heart that only God can bring. I have shared this testimony or this uh, story with a few people this week, but when it comes to the change of heart, I cannot think of a better story. Um, for those of you who do not know me, I'm originally from Albania, and uh, part of our ministry with Ruth in Albania, we led children's camps in the summer. And the children used to come on a Monday, and they used to go home on a Saturday. And one of the things that we experience with our camps is that while the children came, um, from, uh, some of them in the beginning of the week were very rude. And we tried to explain to them that it is important to be polite and to use the thank yous and the pleases and stuff. And, and the idea was that actually we wanted them to, to, to really be a blessing for one another, but also for the families that they were going back to. And it was amazing to see that transformation of, of them in the duration of that whole week. And sometimes the following week we would, met, we, we would meet parents in the streets and they say, I don't know what you've done to the kids, but they seem to be eating all their meals, they're very polite and stuff. And then the same kids would come back on the next year. And then we had to start again, teaching them pleases and thank yous. And the, the reason why I'm telling this story is because I think I was looking more for a change of behavior rather than a change of heart. And when I say about the, um, the statements of, of Micah to act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly, with your God is not just a catchphrase, something that we adhere to, 
but it's what God is changing our hearts into. So it's not just necessarily the behavior because we're doing it just for the sake of doing it. But no, we have met the goodness of God. And because we have met the goodness of God, the word there, it's very strong, guys. It says, what does God demand of you? So if that change of heart happens, it is very clear the outworking of it is not just going to be good behavior. It's going to be a changed heart. It's going to be, for me, to, to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with my God. And how, how, how much grateful I am that I am not 2,700 years ago in the times of Micah, that I am in a better era of, of God, God dealing with the people, with his people, that we've got the Lord Jesus, who not only died on the cross for me falling short of acting justly, not loving mercy, and not walking humbly with my God, but he also died on the cross. His sacrifice, died, his sacrifice on the cross was to empower me, was to give me the strength, was to give me that dimension, dynamic of life, that actually I, because of what Jesus has done for me and the way that he is transforming my life, I am acting justly. I am loving mercy. I'm walking humbly with my God. I want to finish with uh, Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4, when it talks, uh, when, when Paul writes to, to this church in, in Rome, and he says that what the law, so this, this relationship of the law that the people had in, in the Old Testament, what the law was powerless to do in that it, that it weakened the sinful nature. It weakened the, 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 my power to be doing it just because of my sinful nature. But God did strengthen it by sending his own son in the likeness of a sinful man to be a sin offering. So Christ died for us. And so he condemned sin in the sinful man so he condemned the sin, the my shortcoming of not acting with justice, not loving mercy, not walking humbly with my God, in order that the righteousness requirements of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Holy Spirit. This is the good news, folks. This is the good news, that whenever I look at that phrase of Micah 6, 8, I don't look at it as achieving with my own strength, but I look at it as looking at the goodness of God, of who he is, and the way that he is transforming my heart. So it's not just good behavior. It's not just because it's expected for us to be living in the 21st century, but it is because God demands it because God requests it, because God is enabling us to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly 
with our God. And before we sing the final song, I just wanted for us to take a pause here and to think not only of our shortcomings towards this phrase and the catchphrase, but also to think of the opportunity that we have to live because we have met the goodness of God.